Welcome to the AI Hustle Podcast, the podcast where we break down the latest in AI news, tools, and interview experts helping you hustle and do more using AI. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that over the last six months, I've been working on a stealth AI startup. Of the hundreds of projects I've covered, this is the one that I believe has the greatest potential. So today I'm excited to announce AI Box. AI Box is a no-code AI app building platform paired with the App Store for AI that lets you monetize your AI tools. The platform lets you build apps by linking together AI models like ChatGPT, MidJourney, and Eleven Labs eventually will integrate with software like Gmail, Trello, and Salesforce so you can use AI to automate every function in your organization. To get notified when we launch and be one of the first to build on the platform, you can join the waitlist at AIbox.ai. The link is in the show notes. We are currently raising a seed round of funding. If you're an investor that is focused on disruptive tech, I'd love to tell you more about the platform. You can reach out to me at jaden at AIbox.ai. I'll leave that email in the show notes. Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined with Fedor Stanov, who is a seasoned AI expert with over 18 years of experience in machine learning and product development. Formerly a principal scientist at AWS, he now serves as the head of AI at Toloka, who is focusing on creating state-of-the-art responsible AI technologies with human oversight. A thought leader in the field, Fedor has contributed to VentureBee and is, you know, really passionate about bringing, bridging kind of the gap between machine learning and human insight. Welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot, Dia. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro. Super excited to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to kick this thing off and kind of ask you a little bit about your journey and if you could walk us through, you know, what that looked like. You were a principal scientist at AWS and now you're kind of the head of AI. Did you always know that you were interested in AI and kind of this tech space, um, you know, growing up? Or is this something that you discovered as you were going through school? Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, actually, um, if you ask me specifically about AI, um, I was doing some applied mathematics and numerical methods. And then I found um, a scientific supervisor who was like, hey, there's this machine learning thing and it's uh, pretty cool. And I was back in 20 or something. And uh, everybody was using support vector machines at the time. And we found a really cool application for uh, of support vector machine to plasma physics. And oh, wow, this is a really neat way of automating um, really complex discoveries, which physicists do and the journey started, then I did my PhD in computer science and worked in a few companies like yeah, Amazon, um, Microsoft, AWS. And uh, but what's also curious, and I actually hope that machine learning uh, folks uh, can hear me because I think that's that's uh, worthwhile. At some point, I um, realized that everybody in the AI is about automation. Everybody's like, okay, let's automate this, let's automate that. But the real like. The real beneficiary out of all of this should, at the end of the day, be humans. And how do you make AI really beneficial for humans? How do you make sure that humans stay in the loop when the AI makes decisions? You know, how do you make sure that the AI makes decisions which are useful? And this is the area where I kind of shifted a few years ago, actually about five or six years ago. Um, and in, in AWS, I was working in the, same, uh, in the same area as well. And so, um, again, from AWS, moved uh, to Taloka to progress in uh, in that area of Kim uh, Lop and now I'm head over behind chief scientist. That's super cool. 
Um, I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit? It sounds like an incredible background, and you you know you've been working in this for for a long time, so you've seen this whole thing evolve a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in Taloka moving, right? You obviously probably had a great job over at AWS. I know a bunch of folks that that work there and, and you know, it's it's a fairly good place to to be, whatnot. What kind of got you interested in moving to to this kind of new company and this new uh, this new idea? Yeah, yeah. Actually happy to share this. Uh, so imagine that you're doing you're doing artificial intelligence. And you're thinking, well, how do I make it useful? How do I make my models? And then we, you very often, before the age of large language models, you often had to collect um, label data. You had to say, you know, whether which data is good, which data is bad. And, and you had to go through this process of collect, collecting data, which is getting feedback from humans. And very often you see in the papers where um, it's hard, expensive. Uh, it's a manual process where you have to work with humans and not math and algorithms. And for tech people, sometimes it's tough. And then you realize that there is this area, which is crowdsourcing, which is basically like you have humans all around the world who some of them have nothing to do. Some of them, you know, really want to earn a little bit of money on the side. Some of them want to earn a fair amount of money. And then you, you think, how do I include them in the process of making AI? And so this is uh, where Taloka, in my opinion, excels. It's really incredible. It's it's better than many, many others, if not better. Everyone is doing this job of involving humans around the world into the AI-making process. And uh, this becomes a much more technological problem than the problem of you know, normal human collaboration or normal human management. So it's a technological problem to... Uh, you know, to, to collecting, working with humans, technological way of working with humans, um, technological solution to that problem. And this is what is really cool, I think, in the log. It's a technological platform for um, dealing with humans and co contributing to the AI. Super fascinating background. I love what you are working on. I'm wondering if you could share some success stories where human in the loop, uh, you know, processes significantly improved AI performance. Yeah, let me let me recall a couple of stories uh, from the background. What one thing which is certainly worth noticing is that humans are always present in improving AI performance. Humans are basically crucial. This is like how it's AI is built. Before LMs, you used um, humans, as I mentioned, to um, provide ground truth labels on which an AI is trained and it says this is good, this is bad. Humans were those who fight it. Now with LMs. You still have the same thing. You have this alignment process where you ask LLMs to produce results which sound better to humans, which actually reply to human queries. So without the human involvement, you very rarely get usually up. Um, but if you think about the human loop in the usual way, people understand it where the models and machines at the same time work together to achieve like a better benefit. Um, the most popular example is probably the moderation example, the, the example where, let's say, there's a lot of uh, user content, like texts uh, to some um, to some uh, forms, or maybe some images are submitted to a website, and then you need to filter out in almost in real life, in real time, um, bad images, inappropriate images, or bad content. Right? So you usually build a model, and then very often the model doesn't get you High, doesn't give you high enough accuracy. And so you trust the model when the model is confident. You don't trust the model when the model is not confident. You rely on humans to fill this gray area. It's 
Okay. Like cases. That's that's one example. Now the more fun examples are, I'd say, if you think about say Amazon Go, um, uh, so Amazon Go, if you're not familiar with it, if you haven't heard about it, is a cashier uh, cashierless store. So you enter the store, you take whatever products you want, and you, you leave. The way it works is that there's a lot of um, canvas uh, uh, in the ceiling of um, of that store, and they track the person who enters, they see what to take. Right. So the way it works is that there's machine learning which tracks you, which detects what you took, and then basically sends you a receipt afterwards to the new store. So this is this happens very quickly after we leave the store, you get the receipt most of the time. But sometimes, if you toss the, your product to someone else, or if you try to trick the system where you give it to someone else and leave it with that product, or you try to put the product in the wrong place and then you take it from the wrong place, it, pay, it took, a few years ago, it took um, uh, quite some time before you get the receipt. And the reason for that, at least the growers say, is that the complex cases were monitored, were actually observed by real humans, and then they were checking. Oh, okay. So that's, that's a more of a fun example. Um, then there's another fun example. When, when Yandex was building um, building personal assistance, uh, it's something similar to Amazon Alexa or, or Google's uh, personal assistant, Alice. So before they even released, you know, just when they started collecting data, um, basically the engineers were given this chatbot, like a preliminary version of a chatbot to ask this chatbot questions and then the chatbot would give them answers. And the engineers were talking with that chatbot thinking that they're talking to, to some really beta version of the model and then someone decided to find out, oh, where does this model host it? What's the, what's the computer? And then they didn't find the computer when the model was hosted. And they figured out that the whole process was actually built in a way that when the engineers asked the question, it's the real people, assessors, answered those questions. Basically, the process of data collection. That's another fun story of how, how human, instead of, um, instead of uh, AI helps in uh, getting used to things. That's super cool. Yeah, those are awesome stories. Really interesting. I had no idea. So that's some cool insights. I'm wondering, you know, how does Toloka ensure the quality of human labeled data across, you know, such a diverse, like diverse languages and countries and all that? Well, uh, yeah, sure. That's, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, so Toloka approaches this way of um, the problem of, of getting data uh, or interacting with humans through a technological perspective. Basically, you think about what kind of abstractions, what kind of tools can help you get higher quality data. And so there is uh, actually quite a variety of popular um, crowdsourcing tools which um, uh, which help you get a higher quality data. So first you get, uh, you give people entry tests. So some tasks where you don't want people to waste their time. You actually give some sort of fairly simple, usually tests for how well they perform. Okay. So do they know English? Do they know Spanish? Do they know on a server? Then you want to actually get certain high proficiency. You give people training. And then there is the process of actually giving people training. It's not a manual process. You design training tasks, ask training tasks to people where you say, um, this is a task, please perform it. And then people say, Performance and say, no, you're incorrect. We chose this answer, but you should have chosen that answer. This is why. And so people learn this week, and then they get through a second test or exam, um, which is, of course, um, higher um, higher quality or that ensures that you can perform, the, you know, the person can perform at a level. And so then you, uh, the person is allowed to perform real, real tasks. 
However, there are some mm-hmm. people, of course, uh, who are trying to cheat through the system and who are trying to get through training and exam with themselves, and then they try to automate or not really cancel. So to avoid this, we have um, other tools, which is we actually have so-called helipods, where basically somewhere in the middle of your answers, there's an answer with a known, there's a question with a known answer. And uh, wow. if the person answers incorrectly too many times to those kind of questions, they're not allowed to perform the tasking. And so incorporating those um, thoughts into the process of labeling, into checking, regular checking of performance is a crucial part of high-quality labeling. Those honeypots are built by um, a more trustworthy people, most trustworthy assessors who have been tested by themselves by even higher, uh, more trustworthy experts. So basically you have this pyramid of you know, quality, quality um, feedback providers. And so the, you know, the more expert keys you require from the provider, usually the uh, rare chance you have to find them. And so as a result, you have a lot of people who have to be checked by um, trustworthy uh, people and those have to be checked by experts. So this is the way we approach our getting accuracy. Okay, very interesting. That's uh, yeah, that's a problem I had not really thought about the solution to solve. It's fascinating how you guys are currently working on it. You know, with all of this that you're currently working on, what do you think are some of the ethical challenges that, you know, maybe yourself, but also the AI community needs to address urgently? What What's kind of on your, your radar right now? So to me, there's a lot of discussions right now about, uh, you know, generative AI, about large language models, about um, putting some sort of um, some sort of government restrictions on who can provide the models. In my opinion, uh, yeah. you can build those models. In my opinion, what's quite problematic is that right now that there isn't that much of a variety of models which are high performing and which are which can be easily representative of the uh, various groups of people. Current mm-hmm. high performing models are basically based on quite frankly biased data and the data for which what is good data, what is bad data, is determined by a very small group of um, people who quite often do not represent some other groups which are interesting, some other groups which are important. And in my opinion, what's worth doing is actually being well open about how you construct a task to large language models or these foundation models, sharing instructions or sharing the actual data for fine-tuning or aligning those models in a way that other interested members to build the models which are less wise to that specific small group. So that's mm-hmm. um, quite important because otherwise it's just influencing basically the whole society. You, you've seen the, um, the amount of people who started using chat GPTs, quite a lot of people. The influence of yeah. what kind of answers the models give is quite significant. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's super important. Um, it's something I definitely think a lot about because, of course, right now we have, like you mentioned, these these large language models. We have OpenAI, we have you know Google and Meta, and really all of these companies coming up with these. It's a kind of a small bubble around San Francisco, really. And it's and like we all know that San Francisco has a lot of its own ideas. Some people love some of them. Some people don't love all of them. But there's definitely different ideas all around the world that different people subscribe to or don't subscribe to. And so, yeah, having one small group of people create these essentially large models that like for Google's, you know, they're integrated in their search. This is going to be seen by billions of people around the world. Um, where do you see this going in the future in, in regards to that? 
do you think that there's a place where someone like OpenAI or Google or Meta could create a model everyone would want? Or do you think, you know, at some point people are just going to say, look, I don't align with these large models on XYZ topics. I'm going to find maybe like there's, you know, thousands of models and this is the kind of the one that more aligns with my beliefs. Do you see the industry going in that direction? So I, that's a great one to have doing to all question because um, people that it either a model of open source uh, or that the open source is going to grow and, and which is going to have those models available or betting that, hey, a Gen AI is the next cloud and right, it's, it's a great question. Uh, I tend to be on the camp which thinks that um, over time, if you look at the history of machine learning, things like building models became cheaper um, over time. Oh, it always becomes cheaper. It always becomes more accessible to you know quite a large variety of, of different groups. Um, and uh, the information on how to build those models also leaks and people leave one company and get another. So I really hope um, that the future is going to be that the technology is going to spread and more people are going to be able to build those kind of models and uh, tune them to whatever needs they see, whatever underrepresented groups they see in the society so that you have a diversity and um, not a, basically a single or a few heads of pity about um, about this topic. So this is, this is my, my hope. Uh, I do think that the openness helps here, but I do think also that it's worth being careful about opening everything uh, is worth putting some sort of um, guards or government laws against uh, against misuse or against you know, possible um, ways these models can be used for for um, some legal purposes. So it's, it's certainly worth doing that. But I did hear in the you know in the industry some quite radical in my opinion propositions of say allowing. Uh, the models to be only created by very, very specific list of, say, companies or institutions. And that, to me, seems quite a, a quite a risky path to take. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. It's interesting, you know, um, OpenAI, of course, Sam Altman famously went to Congress in the United States and said, we need to regulate AI, I'll help you write the regulation, we need to decide who gets to, you know, get a license to train the models. And of course, a lot of people raise red flags about that when, you know, the biggest company with $10 billion says that they want to be the one to help give out the certificates of who can and can't do it. So I think there'll be pushback. Of course, there's the open source community. Um, I think a lot of the stuff Meta has done has, honestly, it's kind of interesting. I'm not usually like a huge fan of, of Meta and Facebook and whatnot, but some of the open source stuff they've done with uh, AI, I think is really interesting. And I got it. I just have to, you know, give them credit where credit's due on that. Um, and even a lot of the infrastructure they built. So very cool see like kind of what we're seeing in the space. I think inevitably, whether there's regulation or not, like if there's too much regulation, people are just going to get like boot, you know, bootlegged open source yeah. models. You're going to have them on a thumb drive and it's going to be your, you know, open source model that doesn't have the open AI guardrails or, or whatever, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. In any case, um, I guess based on your really extensive experience you've had in this space, something I would love to ask you about as we kind of wrap up the show is, you know, what advice would you give to companies looking to implement AI solutions responsibly today? I'm glad you asked about the responsibly part because that's, um, I think it's quite important nowadays with the models don't only give you the binary answers. This is good. This is bad. Your mistake um, is costly 
for the binary models, but it's not nearly as costly. It can be not nearly as costly as the mistake for generative models, which can significantly offend some of you know, can uh, really provide some really unpleasant or illegal justifications or descriptions. And, uh, um, and because of this larger impact of the gen specifically the generative models, because of how much risk they, um, they have, I'd say that it's really important if you're developing some sort of a product based on Gemini, not to save on evaluation, not to, you know, evaluate on your users, say, okay, we'll just tell me what's good and what's bad, really investing in evaluation, really think about in advance, how are you going to judge whether the model is not providing uh, risky answers, not providing some unbiased uh, opinion, which reinforces some sort of societal problems, but really, you know, provides great experience with getting real truths instead of making up facts or hallucinating what they call. And so it should be done, in my opinion, really, really early um, in the process of model development. So I'd say that this is, this is if you ask me about single advice, I, I'd say that evaluation here, you're worth it. Um, and uh, it, it proves that you, you take things responsibly. You actually think about what you built and, and you're sure about it and you, you can demonstrate. I, I love that. I think that's some really solid advice. Fedora, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've really appreciated a lot of your advice and insights. It's really uh, refreshing because it, you I get a lot of different uh, you know perspectives on this show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I really think you're on the right track with you know what you guys are working on, what you're doing, and kind of your philosophy behind it. So that's always uh, it, that always makes me happy to hear. Um, if people are interested in getting in contact with you, um, and, or Toloka and finding out more about what you guys are building and working on, what's a good way for them to do that? Yeah, um, they can connect me on LinkedIn or um, I think that's the best way. Just find me on LinkedIn and okay. to connect. Right. Okay. And thanks for having Wonderful. me. It was a great conversation. It was interesting and uh, fun and active. Yeah. Yeah, it was super enlightening. So really appreciate you coming on. To the listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts and have a wonderful rest of your day. If you are looking for an innovative and creative community of people using ChatGPT, you need to join our ChatGPT creators community. I'll drop a link in the description to this podcast. We'd love to see you there where we share tips and tricks of what is working in ChatGPT. It's a lot easier than a podcast as you can see screenshots, you can share and comment on things that are currently working. So if this sounds interesting to you, check out the link in the comment. We'd love to have you in the community. Thanks for joining me on the OpenAI podcast. It would mean the world to me if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in to the AI Hustle podcast. If you could do us a massive favor, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. This helps people find the podcast. It helps people know this is a good place to go. And we would really, really appreciate it as it helps us continue to bring on incredible guests and share incredible content for you to listen to.